you'll remember that Peter's theme of suffering, he started in the very beginning in, in 1 Peter 1, he talked about the hope that we have in our suffering. That he told us that we have an inheritance that is imperishable and that is kept for us in eternity. And not only do we have this imperishable inheritance that cannot be destroyed, but the power of God will make sure that we as Christians will arrive at that inheritance, that it will not somehow slip away from us during our life, that we will be kept by the power of God absolutely, and that we will absolutely inherit this perfect eternal inheritance that is kept for us, and that's where our hope should be. Our hope should not really be in our circumstances. It's not the circumstances of our life that cause us to have hope or, or despair. So that's where Peter sort of set the tone of, of what he would be talking about. And then he talked about how we act in the world when we suffer. He says, as Christians, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer under terrible bosses. And so he says, submit, slaves, to your masters. You're going you're gonna to suffer under bad bosses, but you are to be humble and you're to submit. Peter knows that we're going to suffer under bad governance sometimes or um, bad authority. And he says, submit to all human authorities, you Christians, even those authorities that are persecuting you. And remember that Peter's talking about this right now. This letter's written, most likely the last half of 64 AD, 65 AD, somewhere in there. This is the beginning of the persecution like Christians have never seen before. This is Nero crazy, insane emperor, burns down his own city so that he can build something better, blames it on the Christians because they're nearby, and all of a sudden this persecution begins that's going to go on for 200 years. There'll be untold persecution. And Peter says, submit to all human authority. Yes, even Nero, even to the Roman authorities, you're to submit. And in your submission to your authorities and to each other and to your bosses, you submit humbly and you act uprightly and you speak rightly and you act righteously. And by them seeing us as Christians suffering in that way, but still acting rightly, some people might even come to the knowledge of God. That we might even have an opportunity. And you remember Nick talked about how with gentleness and love and respect, we have an opportunity to give an account for what we believe. And so that some of these people that, that we suffer rightly under may actually come to know God. And then he went on to talk about as Christians, as a Christian community, in the reality of this suffering, this persecution, and in the reality of the sickness and the fallenness of this world and the bad bosses and bad governance and everything else and bad marriages even. You know, he talked about husbands and wives and how wives are to live and how husbands are to live. And whatever, you, wherever, whatever sphere you're suffering in, Peter goes on to say, and this is how the church is to care for each other. And he talked about the gifts. You remember those four things that he told us. He said, love one another fervently with that ectonos love, ectonos agape. We learned those Greek words, ectonos, that stretching love. Stretch your love out to cover each other and, get, and show grace to each other. And then he says, be hospitable, right? That was last week. He says, you know, you got, it's bad enough out there in the world. It's bad enough that you're suffering Throw a party, have people over for dinner, share your couch, give people a place to sleep, whatever. Be hospitable with each other and then speak the truth. Speak as though you're speaking the very oracles or mysteries of God to each other as Christians. Speak the truth to each other. Speak the words of God. And then what was the fourth one? It just slipped my mind. It's not my notes. <laughs> what was the fourth one? Does anybody remember the fourth one? Speak the truth. It was love, hospitality, speak the truth. Oh, acts of service, and then and then act towards each other, right? Whoever serves as though serving God, right? And so serve each other. And so he said, as Christians, as we are suffering together, basically be the church to each other, right? It's hard enough out there without 
without, without, without having the support of a church. And so he says, just, just be the church for each other. It's that simple. Just love each other. That's, that's help in our suffering. And now Peter goes on in the last half of, of chapter four, he goes on and he says, here, and he expands on the purpose of suffering. And this, this is powerful stuff. This is great, great stuff here in Peter. I wish we had longer to spend in Peter, but we're going to do first Peter chapter four, 12 to 19. As Peter expands on the purpose of why we're suffering and then how to rightly pass the test of that suffering. First Peter 4, 12 to 19, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will become what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's pray before we look into God's word. Father God, we come into your presence and we come into your presence as our Father, we come into your presence with your Holy Spirit here among us, dwelling with us in this very room with us. And we come into your presence through the living word of God, which we've just read. And so in all these ways, Lord, we come into your presence and we ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds to what you would teach us about this very difficult reality of our life, which is suffering. And there is nobody here in this room that isn't touched by it. And so, Lord, I recognize and I, and I realize, we all realize the importance of this teaching, that this is life-altering, that this is where the rubber meets the road as we live our lives as Christians, not just in the esoteric or the theoretical or theological but in the reality of our day-to-day lives, where we are in pain, where we are hurting, where we're suffering. And you are not unaware of that, Lord. You speak to it. You speak to it right here in this text. So open our eyes, Lord. Help us to see it. Amen. So the first thing I just want to touch on really quickly, it's not the main point of the text necessarily or the main point of my sermon, but I do want to touch on it, is that verse right in the middle there where he says, and you can talk more about this maybe in your small groups, but make sure, he says in verse 15, that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, evildoer, or as a troublemaker. And so Peter's not talking about the consequences here of suffering for wrongdoing. Okay, it's just a little clarification there in the middle of the text. You know, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but Peter felt it needed to be text, needed to be said, and I agree with him. If you do evil, you suffer, 
And as a Christian, you shouldn't be suffering for doing evil because you shouldn't be doing any evil, is what Peter is essentially saying, right? And so Peter is not instructing us to rejoice in the sufferings that we face for acting wrongly, and he isn't saying not to be ashamed of the suffering we face for bad behavior. We should be ashamed for that behavior, and we should expect suffering. He says, by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. And that's an interesting list, really, when you think about who Peter's writing to. He's, he started off by saying, he started off that paragraph saying, beloved. He's, he's writing to the church. Nice church he must have come from there. You know, you, don't, don't suffer as murderers or thieves, uh, or evildoers, right? It just, it just speaks to our sin that we have to acknowledge the sinful nature that is with us. And Peter says, you don't suffer that way by no means, or by any evildoing, or even just by being a troublesome meddler. Don't even be a meddler. Or your suffering could be justified. If you're suffering because you assault people, or you're suffering because you steal, or you're suffering because you stick your nose into other people's business, then that's not the kind of suffering that Peter says to rejoice in or to be unashamed of. And I'll just say here that I have met my fair share of Christians who have suffered, and they come to me uh, in their crisis of their suffering, and when they explain why they're suffering, I'm not surprised that they're suffering, uh, because they have made choices in their life that have led to their suffering. And they're sort of coming in this sort of righteous way, thinking, oh, you know, the world is so hard, and I, I'm a Christian, and, you know, my family's treating me this way, or, or the, my workmates are treating me this way, or this is happening to me, and it, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm just bearing the cross of Christ. And I'm thinking, you're not really bearing the cross of Christ. You're suffering because you've acted foolishly. You know, you're suffering because, because you've done wrong. You're, you're just, you're just suffering the consequences of what happens. And so, you know, if, if you're in trouble with the law because you're a criminal, that's not suffering for the cause of Christ or for the name of Christ. If, you know, if, if you're suffering in your health because you're a glutton or you're addicted to something you shouldn't be addicted to and you're consuming substances you shouldn't be consuming, you're not suffering on behalf of Christ. You're suffering because you're not doing right. That's why you're suffering. You know, and if, if, if you're struggling socially, if you're suffering, you know, people seem to be punching you in the nose all the time socially, it's because your nose has probably been in the wrong place, right? Peter says, don't stick your nose into other people's business. Don't be a troublesome meddler. That's why you're suffering. And you come and you think, why are these people hitting me in my nose? And it's like, well, why is your nose in their business? Might be the answer. Um, and so Peter says, just don't be careful about what you're getting, what you're suffering under or what you're being punished for. It may be because of your own actions. And so that's, that's not what he's talking about here. But it's interesting because we have, even in that last example, we have one of the simple tensions that we come up with in scripture all the time that it's not black and white. What's the difference between meddling and instructing? What's the difference between meddling and exhorting? Because the Bible calls us to exhort, and the Bible calls us to even rebuke. But here Peter says, don't be a meddler. So how do you not meddle but still exhort and rebuke? And I'll let you guys sort that out in your group. That's your homework for you. Uh, but the Bible tells us both things, and you've got some, some guidance in the notes there to figure that out, or maybe over lunch while you're talking about it. Uh, how do we exhort one another and hold each other accountable but not meddle? But Peter says that you can suffer for evil, and that's not what he's talking about. And so there's another way that we suffer, though. And it's when we do what is good, or we suffer by the nature of the fallen world, and through no fault of our own, and God, through Peter, gives us instruction, and he gives us guidance on the purpose of that suffering. Because that's a question that comes up a lot of times, even with our unsaved people. If God is so good, why do we suffer? If God is good, why is there evil? You know, if, if, if you say that God loves you, then why have I watched all this stuff happen in your life? Right? If your God is so loving to you, and you want me to follow your God, then explain to me, what this stuff is doing in your life. Why is your good God causing this suffering? And so Peter explains a lot of that here. Peter says, God says, there's a reason for the suffering in our life. 
and a way that we are to face that suffering as Christians. And the fact is, is that the suffering is a test. Verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing. For your testing. This is why we have the fiery ordeal. And as Peter's primary explanation of the suffering among Christians, these trials, these ordeals, they are really tests. They're testing us. And so when we are in the midst of our trial, one thing we can always do to bring our mind is to 1 Peter 4.12 and remember, first of all, beloved. It's great that he starts this text on suffering by saying beloved. So first of all, remember, beloved or beloved, you are loved. Start with that. Start with in your test and in your trial and in your suffering with that you are loved and then that this is a test even to one that God loves. And depending on your employment or perhaps your health, as a rule, we don't think of ourselves too often as being tested. Students think about it all the time, right? Tests are a regular part of our teenagers and our children's lives as students. You know, they get math tests and they get science tests and they get physical fitness tests and they get English tests and they get Ontario standardized testing and they get driver training tests and they get college application tests. And there's one verb, one thing that you want to do with a test. When you start a test, what is the one thing you want to do with a test? Pass. Yes. Yeah. Finish. Yeah. (laughs) Some students in your class, maybe they just want to finish. Yeah. No, pass. Right. When you start a test, you want to pass. That's that's the one thing tests are for. They're for passing, right? A test or a trial is a thing to be passed. And Peter wants us to see that our suffering here on earth, the trials that we face, face in our lives are primarily a test. A test that we as Christians will either pass or we will fail. We fail the test of suffering when we get stuck in the same place for days and weeks on end. When we are just hunker down and stare at the problem and we're stumped. And, and the problem and the suffering that we're in does not draw out of us any of the Christian responses that it should bring out of us. That's the point of a test. The test has a question and the student is sitting there and they have the question in front of them and it's stumping them. And it, that, that question is designed to draw out of the student the response that is appropriate. And if the student can draw out of themselves the response that is appropriate, they pass the test. They pass that answer. Right, And so as we suffer, if we're just stuck there for days and weeks and months on end, and that suffering is not drawing out of us the Christian response, then we're failing the test of suffering. Right? Nor does that testing teach us anything if it doesn't cause us to look deeper to find the answer. If the test doesn't draw the right response from us, or if it doesn't cause us to search further to find the answer so that we can pass that question or that test, if we just sit and stew and grumble and despair, then we're failing the test. We pass the test of suffering when it draws out of us the right response as Christians. When we answer the problem in our life in a faithful, God-glorifying and righteous way, when we are faced with that test of suffering and our response is righteous and it is faithful and it glorifies God, when the test of suffering results in the proving that our Christian nature is real and active and it's actually informing how we respond, then we prove that we have been and are being transformed and that our faith is sufficient and the gospel is glorious and that it is victorious in our lives. So when we pass the test of suffering with those responses, it proves all of that. Just like a test at school proves we know our math or know our science or how to dovetail a drawer joint thing, whatever carpenters do, Graham. 
(laughs) It proves that we passed the test. And Peter outlines five responses then of how we pass that test. Peter says it's a trial, so then how do we respond? He says, here's five ways you pass the test. In suffering, you rejoice, you are not ashamed, you glorify God, you trust God, and you do what is right in the midst of your suffering. He says all five of those things in the next six verses. First of all, rejoice. Verse 13, Peter says, rejoice. To the degree that you share in the suffering of Christ, rejoice. He says, to the degree. Or in other words, as your suffering increases to the degree that you're suffering, so should your rejoicing suffer increase. As your suffering matches the suffering of Christ, so should your joy increase. And verse 14 says that if you are reviled or suffer because of your faith in the name of Christ, then that shouldn't be count, that should be counted as a blessing because you share that suffering with Jesus himself. And Jesus taught in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 11 to 12. This is one of his most famous excerpts even from that famous sermon. He says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice when our faith is tested. Rejoice when we are reviled and persecuted for the name of Christ because we are in good company. We are in company with the prophets who suffered in the same way. We're in the same company as Jesus who suffered in the same way. We are in the same company as the apostles who suffered in the same way. So when you suffer for the name of Jesus, then you should rejoice because you're in good company. Acts 5, 40 and 41 says, speaking of Peter and the apostle John, and they had been brought before the Sanhedrin and accused of preaching the name of Jesus, and they... uh Gathered together, Acts 5, 40 to 41, as they, the Sanhedrin, took the advice of Gamaliel and decided not to kill him. And instead of killing them, after calling the apostles, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak the name of Jesus and then released them. And so they went on their way, the apostles, the disciples, went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so here are the disciples preaching the name of God, dragged before the council. They're going to kill him. One of their elders decides to say, no, no, it's not good that we kill them. We should just flog them. And so they just flogged them and beat them and then sent them on their way. And they were, they were celebrating because of it. And so Peter says first that it is a cause to rejoice when we suffer. That's the first way we see ourselves passing the test. When, when you're suffering, is your rejoicing increasing? It's a tough one. It's a tough test. It's a tough answer. If we can rejoice in our identity with the prophets and the apostles and primarily with our identity with Jesus as we are transformed more and more into his likeness under suffering, Jesus learned obedience through suffering. And so if we can look at our suffering and realize that we are being tested to learn something and that our suffering is no different than what Jesus suffered and we can rejoice in that, then we can start to pass the test of our suffering, Peter says. Secondly, he says, don't be ashamed. Verse 16, Peter says, don't be ashamed. Christian, you should not feel shame when you suffer for what is good or for what is not your fault. It's not your identity as a child of God to be ashamed of yourself. There's no shame in suffering for good as opposed to suffering for evil, in which there is proper shame for. You should be ashamed of suffering for evil. 
But there is no shame in suffering for good. So as you consider the test of your own suffering today, and to the degree that your suffering is for good and not caused by your own sin or your own evil actions, then to what degree are you passing the test by suffering without shame? And this can be hard for people. Some people are ashamed. They're ashamed of their sickness. They're ashamed of the rebuke. They're ashamed of the insults. They're ashamed of the loneliness. They're ashamed of the way people treat them. They're ashamed of how they're viewed at work. And Peter says that in this test of suffering, you are not to be ashamed. And so one of the ways that we as Christians pass the test of suffering is that we hold our head high in our suffering. That we don't look upon the suffering as some sort of, you know, indication of our value as a child of God. We cannot stand before God as His child who is suffering and feel shame as a child of God because in that, it's a type of unbelief, if you understand what I'm saying. This is why it's important. It's important because improper shame is a sort of unbelief. If you feel ashamed of your faith when suffering for the name of God, that's a type of unbelief. It's a type of uncertainty in the gospel of Christ that you're not quite sure that it is as good or as real as as you think it is because you're ashamed of it. Or if you feel ashamed about yourself as a person because the suffering you face, and I'm not talking here about being ashamed of the gospel. I'm not talking about being embarrassed about talking about God. I mean here that you, you feel yourself of lesser worth because of the suffering that is perhaps unique to you or embarrassed because of your circumstances, then that's also a type of unbelief that God is perhaps weak in allowing this to happen to you. Or in another way, that you yourselves are not valuable as a child of God made in His image and transformed in the likeness of His Son. If, if you're ashamed of your circumstances that somehow God made a mistake to put you there, or that, or that somehow maybe you're not worthy of better blessing or something. And that's a type of unbelief as well. And so Peter says that you have no cause to be ashamed. So if you're ashamed and you're suffering today, Peter is saying, you have no reason to be ashamed. And in fact, you pass the test of suffering when you're not ashamed. And instead of feeling shame for our suffering, we should be using our suffering to glorify God even more. He goes on to say in verse 16, which is the third way that we pass the test. We glorify God in our suffering. If the test of our suffering draws out of us the response of glorifying God, that's the answer that will pass the test. Now, what is this glorifying God? What does it mean other than just to say, I glorify you, God, <laughs> you know, or even just to feel that in our hearts? Well, well, really, Peter's already answered that in verse 11. If you go back at what we looked at last week, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our persecution, in the midst of our isolation or rejection, how are Christians meant to glorify God? And if you just look up at 1 Peter 4.11, he talks about glorifying God. He says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom brings the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So how do we glorify God in our suffering? We continue to speak the oracles of God. We continue to serve in the body of Christ. We continue to use our spiritual gifts. In the midst of our suffering, we bring glory to God when we continue to act rightly and speak rightly and use our gifts. We glorify God by how we speak and how we serve and how we act. In the midst of our trials, we ask ourselves if we are going to pass the test in the midst of our suffering by how we speak and how we act. As we suffer, is our speaking and is our serving glorifying God? Or as we are suffering, is our speaking and our serving turning into grumbling and quitting, and despairing, and not bringing glory to God. That would be failing the test. Our behavior and our words are not conditional on the circumstances of our lives. 
How we act and how we speak is not conditional as to whether we're suffering or not right now or whether we think God is putting us through a tough time in our life right now. Our behavior and our speaking are to be righteous and are to be right in the midst of our suffering. I mean, if we don't speak rightly or act, if we, if we were to only speak rightly and act rightly when things were going well, that wouldn't really be a test, would it? I mean, anybody can speak rightly and act rightly when things are going well. That's easy. The test comes when things are not going well, when we are suffering and God calls us to speak rightly and act rightly and to serve one another and to speak the oracles of God to one another. That's when it's a test. And so we bring glory to God. Others will see the glory of God when they see the suffering we're in and yet we still behave rightly and we still act rightly, even to the very people that might be causing that suffering. That's what Peter was talking about earlier in the chapter. How as we... As we're reviled, we bless, and they might have opportunity to ask us what we believe. And so Peter says, these fiery ordeals are a test, and we pass the test by glorifying God in our actions and in our words. We act rightly. There's an old Puritan saying, and I think it might even be a Dutch saying, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And so the sun, the heat of the sun is the heat of our suffering. And so we can ask ourselves in terms of glorifying God whether the heat of that sun is going to melt our hearts and cause us to lean into God and give glory to God in the heat of that suffering or whether the heat of that sun, the heat of that suffering is going to harden our hearts like clay and cause us to revile God or cause us to act poorly or speak poorly because our hearts have been hardened like clay rather than melted by the heat of the sun. It's the same sun. It's the same heat, but it's the heart of us that's going to decide how we respond. And our hearts need to melt towards God and bring glory to him in the heat of our suffering. And finally, Peter really boils it down to two simple realities in this test, this test of our faith and our actions. And verse 19 sums up that test. Are you going to trust God and are you going to do what's right? 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore, those who also suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So number four is we have to trust God. Peter says that if you are suffering for what is right, there's going to be a test going on in your heart and in your mind, but especially in your heart. There is a test going on when you are suffering based on how you are feeling and what you are thinking. Do your feelings and your thoughts reveal a trust in God or not? Do you trust that God is in control or don't you? Do you trust that he loves you more than you can imagine? Do you trust that he has good plans for you and that he can cause all things, even evil things, to work together for your good? Or in the midst of your suffering, are you beginning to doubt God and think this is not the way it's supposed to be? I have to change things. I have to do things. God doesn't know what's going on. He's causing this harm. Whatever. Verse 19 says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God, according to the will of God, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Peter says we entrust our souls to a faithful creator. God is faithful. There's the test. In the midst of our suffering, do we really believe that? Do we put our actions and our mouth where our faith is supposed to be? 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is a faithful creator. 
And if we are struggling as Christians in the midst of suffering, we really have to get our minds and our hearts in the right place to start passing this test of our suffering. Our suffering has to draw out of us a deep-rooted and unshakable faith and trust in a faithful Creator. Our suffering should not cause us to doubt that God is good. It's like the old illustration of a sponge. Whatever is inside that sponge is going to come oozing out when it's put under pressure. And so when we are put under the pressure of a test by suffering, we should be oozing confidence in our amazing, faithful God. If we're put under the pressure of suffering, then what should come oozing out of us to those around us and what should be coming out in our words and our actions should be just more and more confidence in how good and how faithful God is. That's what should come out of us. If when we're put under the pressure of suffering, what is coming out of us is bitterness and doubt and uncertainty and, you know, mm -mm -mm, then that's showing what's inside of us. And we're not passing the test. Peter says that as we are under the test and the trial of suffering, what should ooze out of us in that pressure is faith and trust in a faithful God. Christians under pressure exude confidence in an awesome God that is in the process through these very trials of perfecting us and making us more like Jesus. And if we let the suffering shame us or defeat us or break our emotions or rattle our faith, then that's not passing the test. The other way I want to mention that we need to trust God is that God is doing more in our suffering than just what has to do with us. This is an important one. This is a, this was a life changer for me. This is how we have to trust God. It's so easy for us in our trials and in our suffering and what we're going through, in whatever sphere of our life we're going through, wherever we're suffering, to turn our thoughts almost exclusively upon ourselves. Why is God doing this? Why is this happening to me? What am I supposed to do? Maybe even what is God teaching me and what do I have to learn? You might even be thinking that. But as you trust God and put your faith in Him, Just stop and think about this. Did you ever think that maybe your suffering isn't mainly about you at all? And I ask that question because we are to suffer as Christ suffered. And so I ask you the question, was the suffering of Jesus mainly about Jesus? No. The suffering of Jesus was not about Jesus. And it's one of my favorite sayings. You've heard me say it probably five or six times just in the last few months. God is never doing just one thing. God is always doing 10,000 things. Okay? So in your suffering, this is how you have to trust God. That He is not just using your suffering for something that has to do with you. God is using your suffering and your response to suffering in a thousand other ways. It's a testimony to others around you, how you respond to it. It's a witness to your spouse and to your family. It is an opportunity for grace and mercy from people in your life to respond to you. Maybe it's teaching the people around you how to be more loving towards someone who is suffering. Maybe God is using your suffering to teach me how to be a better pastor. In fact, I can guarantee you that's what he's using it for. He's teaching me. And he's teaching your family. And he's teaching those around you. He's using your suffering as a testimony of his grace to the world who can't believe it. Not only that, God is showing you off to Satan. Remember Job? Was Job's suffering mainly about Job? Or was it a chance for God to brag to Satan about Job? And the scripture tells us that God 
through his people, are proving things and showing things to powers and principalities of this world. That the gospel is something that even angels long to look into. And so God is doing not just one thing that we can fathom that just has to do with us and our suffering. I could go on and on. But God is using your suffering for more than just you. So at some point you have to get your eyes off yourself in your suffering and look to God and trust that God is using your suffering for a thousand things in his kingdom. That he is touching the lives of people all around you in ways you cannot even imagine. That your suffering is not mainly about you. God used the suffering of my own father with Alzheimer's. And he used my father's suffering with Alzheimer's for exactly the number of days that he could get the most glory. To, to teach my mom stuff, to teach me stuff, to teach the nurses stuff, to show us his grace, to show us his mercy, to show us what, what love looks like. My dad's suffering was not mainly about my dad. My dad's suffering was about a thousand things. And your suffering is no more only about you than the suffering of Jesus was only about him. Our suffering will not affect the whole world, nor will our suffering have an atoning effect on sin like the suffering of Jesus did. But let me tell you this, our suffering will certainly have a redeeming and a sanctifying and a maturing effect on our little world around us. Our suffering has an effect on the world. It's not mainly about us. The Apostle Paul says one of the most amazing things about our suffering, this is what Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I'm not just making this up. Paul said it. He says, And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Wow. That was mind-blowing to me. Paul says, in my suffering, I do my part for the benefit of the church. My suffering is doing a thousand things in the church. And in my suffering, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. By that he means Jesus isn't here to suffer anymore. So I'm bearing the suffering that Jesus would bear. We bear the suffering that Jesus would bear if he was here. And in our bearing those sufferings, God is doing a thousand things in his church. We suffer on behalf of the people around us. God does more in our suffering than just what it, making it about us. Finally, do what is right. Trust God in those two ways. Trust that God really is good. Okay? And trust that maybe your suffering isn't just about you, but that God is using it a thousand ways that you can't even comprehend. And then do what is right. Finally, Peter says, do what is right. With this unshakable trust in God, under the test of suffering, we're called to continue to act and speak what is right. Our sufferings are not an excuse to behave poorly or to pay back or to seek vengeance or to write someone off or to treat people less than perfectly. Our sufferings are our tests for us to pass. Our tests, our sufferings are not for other people to fix. Now, God may use other people to show grace and mercy to us, to teach them things and to show his grace and mercy, but our sufferings are our tests that we pass ourselves. They're not excuses for us to behave badly. If you really want to pass the test, do you really want to face the examination of God in our suffering and pass with flying colors? Then trust God and behave properly regardless of your circumstances. 
resolve in your heart and in your faith to act righteously and to show grace and patience and mercy and that all of your actions and all of your words would be filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22 is a reminder, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, and against such things there is no law. And a Christian acting in that way, treating people in all of those ways of the fruit of the Spirit, even those that are causing suffering, Christians, when, when they're squeezed by suffering and all those things flow out of them, they're passing the test of suffering. They're passing the test and the trial the fiery trial that is upon them. Because even as they're squeezed by that suffering, this is what flows out of them. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And all those things just flow out of their behaviors and their words. And they pass the test of suffering. And so for you, the application here is not tricky. It's not complicated. Consider your own suffering. Is it for good or is it for evil, first of all? Really consider why you're suffering. And maybe own up to the fact that maybe you're suffering because of stuff you did. But then that suffering that isn't your fault, that suffering that is purely for good or circumstances. How are you responding to that suffering? How are you passing the test, the fiery trial that is upon you? Right? Consider where we failed the initial test and we've responded badly and spoken evilly and acted wrongly in our own right and made our suffering worse. But then consider how you can start to pass the test of your suffering by behaving right, by trusting God, by believing that he's doing more in your suffering than you can imagine. And that you have an opportunity to show where your faith really stands. Let's be that sort of church. Let's be a church of people who see the trials of their life for what they really are, their tests. And whether it's sickness, or whether it's marriage troubles, or whether it's disobedient teenagers, or whether it's isolation for family, or loneliness, or mocking, or shame, or it's persecution at work, whatever the suffering is, let this be a church that sees the tests for what they are as tests, and then be a people that pass those tests with flying colors. And now just to put it all in perspective, because I can't talk about suffering without really considering our suffering. There's a phrase that goes around, it's been going around for a few years now, you see it on Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that, it's first world problems, right? Anybody seen that, first world problems? Right, it usually comes after somebody's complaining that they can't fit the 80 inch into their den, they have to settle for the 60 inch TV, first world problem, right? You know, or they spilled the foam off of their $7 Starbucks latte onto the leather seat of their BMW, first world problem, right? Okay? All of this stuff of suffering that I'm talking about, Peter says it's real. It's real in marriages, it's real in bosses and work, it's real in authorities, it's real in governance, it's real in our life, in sickness and all these things. It's not less real. But we can't talk about suffering. We can't talk about suffering without talking about what's going on in the Middle East, can we? Right? As Christians. Like, we gotta think about ISIS and ISIL, whatever they call themselves now. Right? We gotta think about waking up in the morning or in the middle of the night with kids getting dragged out of their beds by soldiers to be killed. we got to talk about husbands and, and wives, their heads cut off, throats slit because of their faith, right? We have to talk about Christians living in parts of the world that know suffering like we don't know suffering. And so we can have our suffering, and we can sort of deal with our suffering, but we have to recognize what real suffering is and what it is to pass the test. And I just want to read a, a bit of a poem here from a missionary. It's on the lines along those lines to close. This is a Scottish missionary, Geoffrey Bull. He's born in 1921. He died in 1999. So this is not like hundreds of years ago stuff. 
This is missionary stuff that was going on just a few decades ago. When he was 26 years old, he was imprisoned in China. And at the age of 30, he had been held for three years and two months by the Chinese communists. And part of the time he was held in solitary confinement, he was half-starved, threatened, badgered, and subjected to brainwashing. And he was desperately holding on to some power of objectivity in his brain by making a special study of the six different types of mosquitoes in his cell just to keep his sanity. And in the midst of all of this, he composed a poem. It's a really long poem, which I'll just read you five stanzas of. This was his prayer in the midst of horrible suffering, ISIL and ISIS-like suffering that we only get a glimpse of. This is what he wrote. Let not thy faith face, let not thy face grow dim, dear God, nor sense of thee depart. Let not the memory of thy word burn low within my heart. Let not my spirit, Lord, grow numb through loneliness or fears. Let not my heart to doubt succumb and keep my eyes from tears. Let not the distance come between us as months and years increase. Let not the darkness close me in. Let me not lose thy peace. Let not the pressure of the foe crush out my love for thee. Let not the tiredness and the woe eclipse thy victory. For thy joy is my joy and my hope. Thy day and thy kingdom, gracious God, shall never pass away. And so we have to look at our small sufferings in comparison. And we have to put our behaviors where we say our faith is. And we have to have that kind of confidence in God. That's three and a half years in a jail cell. And his hope and his faith is that he trusts himself. He entrusts himself to a faithful creator to not forget who he is as a Christian and to continue to do and speak and say what is right under the test of suffering. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for First Peter. We thank you for your apostle. We thank you for these words. We pray for the church and the Christians that are suffering right now that in ways we can't even imagine. Lord, we give you thanks that, that we're not going to get woken up tonight by the sound of soldiers dragging our kids out of bed or our husbands or our wives off to be imprisoned and maybe killed. Yeah. You're, you're Christian. Our, our, our brothers and sisters need mercy. So Lord, we just pray for them. And Lord, first world problems, well, they're still problems, even though they're first world problems. And I know that people in this room here are suffering under persecution, under difficulty, under situations of their own making and situations that have been made worse by just the fallen nature of this world and by the persecution of others who maybe aren't Christians. And Lord, in the midst of our suffering, we want this call from Peter to ring out loud and clear. Our suffering is a test. It has come to us as a test. And we have every opportunity to pass that test. So Lord, I pray that what comes out of us is rejoicing, is God-glorifying, is trust in you, is getting our eyes off, the, off ourselves and looking outward as to what you are doing, the hundred things you are using our suffering for, the opportunities for your gospel and your glory to go forth. And finally, most of all, Lord, that we simply trust in a faithful God and do what is right. Act rightly. Father God, this is not a test that I pass. 
all that well myself. But if we could be a church that would pass this test of suffering, the joy, the completeness, the maturity, the, ah, so much would come out of passing this test, Lord. So I just pray for us as a people that we would hear the words of Peter and of your Holy Spirit and we would pass the test of our suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.